This episode is brought to you by BitMEX, the OG crypto exchange that is back and better than ever. You'll hear more about BitMEX later in the show. It makes more sense for a manager to close the fund, liquidate all the assets, then raise another fund, purchase the same assets at a bargain price in a few weeks or months time, and actually profit from the revival of the crypto market. Technically on paper, if you put, put it on an Excel, it makes sense. You lose your reputation though. And that's probably why folks don't end up doing this. All right, all right, all right. We are releasing this on July 1st. It is July 4th weekend. If you're tuning in, you got the dedication. You're not out barbecuing. You're listening to Santi leak some alpha. So uh, <laughs> we're glad to have you here for another episode of Empire. Santi, welcome back, my friend. Leaking some sauce. Uh, what's up, guys? Uh, it's good to be back. There's been a lot that's happening uh, in the space. And so we're excited to cover as much of that as possible. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, Santi, what are you doing for the fourth? Are, do they celebrate the fourth out wherever you live these days? No, I do not live in the U.S. anymore. But uh, uh, it's it. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. No, I I I don't celebrate the fourth other than will you do American anything? Friends. Will you yeah, do yeah, anything yeah, yeah. for like this weekend? Look, I'm not in the U.S. anymore, but I I still owe a lot of uh, like America is dear and dear to my heart because I think it embodies. It's still on a relative basis. I think the best place in the world where anyone has a fair shot at making it. And so that set of cultures and values, I very much believe in. And so, yeah, I, I love America. So uh, I thought know. you were going to say you're like, I owe a lot to America. I thought you were going to say I owe a lot of taxes in America. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yeah, I still celebrate the four. No, no, I, I, I paid a lot of taxes back in the day. I, I mean, I spent <laughs> 10 years in the U.S. And so, no, yeah. <laughs> happy fourth, everyone. <laughs> happy fourth. Happy fourth. Awesome. All right. So uh, big episode today. Um, Here's the agenda for today. And per usual, uh, we're, we'll probably divulge into a bunch of random topics, but agenda for today, market update, talk about just what happened this week, getting into some of the big news stories. Second, we'll jump into an update on Voyager and Three Arrows. I think Santi might have some thoughts there. CoinFlex, I wanna talk about the unfolding situation with CoinFlex and uh, OG Roger Ver. Uh, then we'll get into some contagion that's happening in the Bitcoin markets and specifically with Bitcoin miners. Uh, Arthur Hayes put out a piece a couple weeks ago about potential doom and gloom on July 4th weekend. We are at July 4th weekend, so we'll share some of those thoughts. Um, I really want Santi to explain high watermarks to me. Um, I'm trying to wrap my head. I, I think I understand them pretty well, but I want to make sure I fully understand them. And I want to make sure you guys all understand them because I think they're very important in today's bear market. Uh, C5 versus DeFi. DeFi is probably where I'm spending the most of my time personally right now. And so I want to get into some thoughts there. Uh, and then just quick news. Uh, and then I think Santi has a book recommendation for us. So big yes. episode. Santi, anything I'm missing there? No, no, no. I think that's really good. Let's get into it. All right, let's get into it. So Bitcoin is down 7% week over week. ETH is down 8%. Bitcoin uh, at the time of this recording which is midday on Thursday, Bitcoin's down to a little above 19,000. ETH is down to a little above 1,000, both down 7 and 8% respectively on the week. Uh, some of the big L1s, Solana is down 14%. Seems like there's a fat bid at $30 for Solana. It's been tough to break through that. Uh, Polkadot's down 12%. Avalanche is down 10%. Um, this past week, another crazy week, right? Three arrows. Uh, looks like they're formally filing for bankruptcy. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, CoinFlex is issuing a new token offering 20% APY to cover some bad debts from Roger Ver. More on that later. Uh, contagion risk is still looming, like we mentioned before. Who is next? We've got July 4th weekend coming. Lack of a bid probably coming on July 4th. 
Uh, we have now seen more than 1 billion in bridge hacks this year. Michael Saylor purchased more Bitcoin this Wednesday after already being down a billion on prior purchases. SEC yesterday denied Grayscale spot Bitcoin ETF. Grayscale responded by suing the SEC. Shout out Grayscale. Um, I think we're all, everyone in the industry is rooting for them to, uh, to do well there. Gary Gensler reaffirmed that Bitcoin is a commodity. Uh, but also stated that many other crypto financial assets have the key attributes of a security. Not a good statement to make. We'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, Coinbase had two negative things come from Wall Street. Uh, I think it was Goldman downgraded them to a sell and Moody's downgraded the debt. Uh, not great for Coinbase, which has already been hammered on the year. Uh, Solana released a working fee market. I mean, a, a phone, a phone. Solana released a phone and uh, crypto Twitter is getting hot over governance decisions, Bitcoin maximalism, good friend of the pod, Nick Carter, shout out Nick, is being attacked by the Bitcoin community for liking something aside from Bitcoin, which uh, shout out Nick, who's done a lot for the space. So man, how are we still feeling, Santi? How are we feeling? Are you still feeling, last week you were excited and the week before you mm -hmm. were feeling good. How are we feeling today? It's a lot of bad news right there. Yeah, look, I mean, I think like we tend to like focus on negative news during this, during a bear market. I mean, that's just a sentiment. That's what we gravitate to. And the media is is really good at feeding that. I mean, I hope that like during, during the course of the next couple of weeks and so like we're just provide a balanced take. Um, there's certainly a lot of negativity. Uh, you know, there's there's been a lot of stuff that has come out to light, particularly the three hour situation is really underwhelming in the sense of like we could have done. I mean, it's, it's just you love wondering like. It seems like everyone and their mother had exposure to Three Arrows and including a lot of DeFi protocols um, that, uh, you know, parked part of their treasury to get some yield. And, you know, I hope like in many ways, like I understand the criticism of this space. Like I think I was looking at I was thinking about this yesterday. It has it feels like a, a system wide impact. Uh, you talk about contagion that Three Arrows is having. Um Across the space, lending desks, um, you know, consumer apps like Voyagers of the world, BlockFi's of the world, um, exchanges. So a lot of people are getting hit. I'm like, this could have been avoided. Like, it is like a Mt. Gox event, except for like, I sympathize like back in the day, like in Mt. Gox, like there wasn't a lot of venues to trade Bitcoin. And so naturally you kind of went to Mt. Gox and a lot of people got impacted because of that. But in today's world, like you didn't have to give your money to Three Arrows. You didn't like... You know, like the, the Singapore Banking Authority just issued a statement reprimanding Three Arrows for not like failing to disclose that they'd they were managing more than 250 million. Like, come on, guys. Like, apparently, the investigation has been going on for a little under a year, but it's like these guys have been really vocal and flashing around the idea that they had billions of dollars under management. <laughs> it's like you cut. It's like a, it's a little too little, too late. You know what I mean? And and, and this is it's it's disappointing because we can do better. You know what I mean? I, I've talked in prior episodes that the biggest risk that I see in this industry is just self-sabotage. And in many ways, like, this is it. I mean, like, it, it's just, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing. Not not a little, actually. It is full stop embarrassing. And so you could blame three hours all day long. But at the end of the day, like, it's really like the due diligence officers in these companies, in these protocols that should have exercised more scrutiny, candidly. I, I am, the short of it is I'm, I'm feeling excited about a number of things. Um, it's also a moment to like reflect and, you know, before this episode, I was telling you, like, I love walking yeah. and, and I've been walking a lot. Yeah. I, um, I went on a trip when I was 22 or 23 to Israel and I met this rabbi and his name is Rabbi Shua. 
And the, and Rabbi Shua told me, he said that the, uh, he was actually giving my best friend some relationship advice, right? Cause my buddy, my buddy was in this like kind of relationship. It was some ups and downs. And he, and he told my friend, he said, look, the, the, the thing that you love about someone is often the things that thing that you don't like about them and the thing that goes wrong. And the, so the thing that you really don't like about your, my buddy's girlfriend at the time is also the thing that you really like about your girlfriend. And it's kind of two sides of the same coin. And that's always stuck with me for the last decade. I, I think about that a lot when it comes to people and situations and, mm -hmm. and things at Blockworks and, and things in my personal life. And I think what we're seeing now is two sides of the same coin. And the reason I bring that story up is right now, one, I'm bankless always uses this line. It's like we're speed running the, the financial history or we're speed running finance. I forget the actual way that they say it. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes we look at that as like a pro, right? We look at the fact that Hayden Adams is and Rob, Rob Leshner and Stani, like they don't come from, they didn't work at Goldman for 20 years. And that's why these systems are so amazing. Um, and a lot of folks in crypto, like there, I'm a history major, right? Mike is a uh, classics major. We're, we didn't come from this ingrained financial system. The downside of that is sometimes we're forced to repeat some of the learnings uh, that maybe folks in traditional capital markets have learned. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, what's happening right now is just uh, the cause of just about every banking financial crisis in history. It, you, you borrow short-term money and then you lend and you lock up funds over the long term, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about uh, September 2008, every single investment bank who borrowed in the wholesale short-term debt markets and went you know, net long, uh, took a government bailout or was bought by a commercial bank or went out of business. And the crypto flavor of this today is that uh, firms that borrowed short-term money at high rates from retail holders locked it up long-term into three arrows and they are paying the penalty right now. So, yeah. One of the things that I've changed my mind recently on is uh, the idea that we can do under collateralized loans in DeFi. Um, I think it's going to, given everything that's going on, the biggest, one of the major criticisms of DeFi is that it's not very capital efficient relative to the tr traditional financial system where you have rehypothecation and um, the idea that a bank takes $1 and then lends out nine. Um, and so in DeFi, obviously, the systems are over collateralized. And in many ways, as you said, you know, it, it, it is nice to know that, uh, particularly everything that's going on and folks that were not, you know, exercising good, you know, good risk management and were lending out under uncollateralized are, are taking a big hit. And, and I think uh, I've, I've been excited about the idea of bringing more capital efficiency to DeFi, but I think my you need a lot of things to happen. Obviously, I, you know, reputation and some sort of enforcement. Uh, but the credit has been, throughout history, you're a history major, the only way credit has been enforced throughout history is violence or the perceived of violence, meaning the government can come down and there's like enforceability. That doesn't exist in DeFi, right? There's no big, and so, um, I think it's just going to take a long time to get there. And that doesn't mean that DeFi is kind of dead or, you know, it just means that there are other interesting innovations happening in DeFi, like minimizing counterparty risk, that there would be reasons why you don't necessarily care about getting under collateralized loan. It's just it, it allows you to get have access and use some of the assets that you have on chain and make them productive. Like, I think that use case is pretty, pretty cool. Um, but it just means that it comes at a, you know, uh, a, at a trade-off. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, the Coinflake situation is pretty interesting. Like they were lending, um, I mean, there was a lot of exposure. I think Roger deposited a lot of BCH and, and then historically he had been a good counterparty, they say, because he was like refilling collateral and had, you know, but this is just a reminder, like, it, it's not so much that like you trust your counterparties, like the, if you assume that this asset class is highly volatile, 
then you should be prepared to like, you should stress test your systems the same way that you, some, the same way that like banks get regulated and are stress test, stress, stress tested. I think you should assume like what happens if the value of this collateral drops 80, 90%? Can it be easily liquidated? Um, how are we going to manage that? And and I think that's where a lot of folks were caught off guard and just because you're in this environment of up only, I guess. Yeah. So here's here's what happened with CoinFlex for folks who uh, hopefully stayed off crypto Twitter this week because I think it's uh, healthy for the emotional state to put the put the Twitter down and do what Santi does and go on a walk. CoinFlex is a um, is an exchange, right? They're a trading and derivatives exchange. They suspended all user withdrawals last Thursday, about a week ago, due to quote extreme market conditions and quote continued uncertainty involving a counterparty. So everyone's thinking, all right, maybe the counterparty's three arrows, right? On Monday, CoinFlex. So five days ago, Monday, uh, CoinFlex announced plans to raise funds by issuing a new token that will offer a 20% annual return. The token, as they put it, related to an outstanding debt owed by a, quote, certain high net worth individual. So then it becomes, okay, it's not three arrows. Who's this high net worth individual? CoinFlex CEO Mark Lamb announced the company would be issuing a new token offering a 20% yield. And if the full amount of 47 million is raised, which it seemed like the high net worth individual owed, then all CoinFlex users would be able to withdraw their funds in full. So basically there's this strange individual, we don't know who it is. Uh, CoinFlex is missing 47 million because of that individual, they, they I guess owe the company money and then uh, they're gonna raise issue a token with a 20% yield to get that money back. Now the interesting thing comes out on Tuesday, the high net worth individual is none other than Roger Ver, right, CEO of trading platform uh, and wallet provider, Bitcoin.com, but more well-known for creating Bitcoin Cash and forking the Bitcoin network, creating Bitcoin Cash, changing the block size uh, back in the kind of block wars of 2017, which I'd really encourage folks to learn about if they uh, don't remember that period. It turns out Roger Ver, according to CoinFlex, owes the exchange 47 million. Um, and CoinFlex said they have a written contract with him obligating him to personally guarantee any negative equity on his CoinFlex account and top up margin regularly. It turns out he's a big customer of CoinFlex. Uh, he denies that the debt pertains to him. Uh, CoinFlex says the debt is 100% related to him. Uh, so just a nasty situation for both parties. Yeah, you, I think that um, it will be interesting what kind of legal precedent uh, happens out of all these kind of restructurings and uh, defaults uh, was Three Arrows um, and, and affiliates, um, obviously CoinFlex, Voyager, um, what kind of kind of legal precedent is set as a result yeah. of that? Uh, you know, there's obviously contracts in place, and so I guess you could sue the person, and there's recourse. And you, but again, it, it would be interesting how the actual court of law in whatever jurisdiction you these these contracts are said to be settled or disputed, um, whether it's Delaware or BBI or Singapore or whatever, uh, how the court interprets that. Um, and and I would be pretty. Um, yeah, it's going to be pretty interesting, I think, to, to see that. Yeah, I've, I've known I've known Mark for years, so I don't want to talk too negatively on CoinFlex. This is Mark Lamb, the CEO of CoinFlex. Mark Lamb. Yeah, exactly. Mark, I've right. known Mark for, for years, since maybe 2017 or 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and he's a great guy. I will just say I'm like, I don't love the uh, $47 million in debt. You issue a token with 20% yield to like to, to backfill the $47 million. It just, uh, it's like... I don't know. Yeah. I, it feels like you gave a $47 million uncollateralized loan to someone who can't pay it back. 
to fund. So then they don't give it back. So then customers can't withdraw. So to fund other customers' withdrawals, they turn the debt into a token, sell it to people and offer 20% APY on it. Feels very degen uh, for a company to do in the heart of a bear market. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, it's 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 like a, I would, I would characterize this as like a distress bond of sorts. Um, yeah. And, and of course, in traditional markets, this is a common practice, like bankruptcy. There's a lot of hedge funds and vulture funds that specialize in distress, in, in distress. And they like to buy bonds, pennies on the dollar and restructure and have some sort of say in the company and, and then end up, you wipe up the existing equity. And then, you know, it could be, it could be a pretty lucrative strategy. I will say it's highly sophisticated. I do question this mechanism and, and if users truly kind of understand what's going on. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I uh, again, 20%, you, you have to then believe like, I think they're, they're saying if Coinflix survives and, you know, is generating all these trading fees and proceeds from that will be diverted to paying people that own this token. And, but again, yeah, you should sort of like, yeah. uh, you, this is, is a big assumption that Coinflex survives, uh, which I'm not sure of, uh, there's yeah. an interesting tweet about, uh, related to this, which is. Uh, someone had mentioned, uh, I think it was Sam, actually, SBF, the founder, CEO, I guess, of Alameda and, and FTX, had said, I think he's one that has perhaps the most amount of insight into the health um, and contagion that is going on in the space just because he's contemplating perhaps buying BlockFi after giving them a $250 million line of credit, um, the Voyager and a few other parties I think he's taking a look at. And he mentioned like a lot of these exchanges in particular are insolvent, they just kind of don't know this yet, uh, or are, hmm. you know, I don't know, like, I don't know if I believe that like someone in the exchange like doesn't know they're insolvent, I think it's pretty cleared, but I, at least I think it was more so, I think people don't realize, and he was kind of intimating at this, that the level of uh, contagion is not is not fully understood yet. Uh, and so to me, that's, that's pretty alarming if you have money with counterparties. Um, it's interesting Which, he called out exchanges, by the way, because when I think yeah, about what's going on, it feels like a lending. Exchanges. Well, and that feels maybe like an aggressive, like he probably wants to scoop up some assets on the cheap. It feels like when I look at, let's let's run through who's been affected. You have Celsius, uh, BlockFi, Genesis had to, I think, sell or hedge all their liquid collateral on hand. Uh, mm -hmm. And they the losses were netted against the balance sheet. You have Nexo. Uh, which claims no exposure to three arrows, but like there's some stuff coming out about Nexo right now. Uh, mm -hmm. Finblocks, which is a crypto yield platform, they with the withdrawal limit of, uh, I think they moved it to like 500 bucks a day or 1500 bucks a month, which is basically mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. same as we're blocking withdrawals. Babel Finance uh, had a $3 billion loan book. They suspended withdrawals. Mm -hmm. um, Voyager, right? They had a massive uh, exposure to three arrows. They stopped, uh, they put their withdrawal limit at $10,000 a day. Mm -hmm. uh, and now Coinflex, right? So Coinflex mm -hmm. is a, an exchange, Voyager is a broker, the rest are mm -hmm. lend and borrow platforms. Um, yeah. So it's interesting that Sam called out the exchanges, not just the lend yeah. and borrow platforms. Yeah. I mean, it remind, remind you a lot of exchanges allow margin and so like leverage positions. And so that might, might be it. Um, I think yeah. um, one of the things that is, is pretty interesting is you know, you, you're sort of wondering, okay, this solidifies the thesis for DeFi, but the problem is a lot of users don't, you know, don't feel comfortable managing their own keys and, and interacting and being a self-custodian. And, and so it's, it's, uh, that is the, the issue, right? Which is, I, I'm very much a believer in DeFi. I don't have a lot of exposure to counterparties because I, I feel comfortable kind of operating in, in a world where I'm in control of, 
of my assets um, and minimize counterparty risk. But um, it it puts into question like what are the I was thinking about this the other day is like what are the things that sure DeFi is great but in reality what what is going to happen like in the next cycle like where what what needs to happen for users to really use this and and how do we create systems that prevent this sort of stuff uh, I think human behavior and greed always gets to some of us um, systemically um, and and these things continue to happen not just in crypto just in general right um, right but I'm curious like. Is DeFi ever going to get the number of users that, like the user that is using CoinFlex, the user that is using, you know, uh, Voyager or Celsius, you know, there was like warning signs for Celsius for a number of times, but people just kept their money there. And um, unfortunately, like, no, I, th I think that's the, the big CEO. question, right? Like, D like Ave and Compound could not have misallocated assets and hid losses like Celsius did, right? Uh, asset management protocols on DeFi like Enzyme couldn't have lied about AUM and asset coverage like Three Arrows did. Maker and Dai, right, couldn't, wouldn't have failed due to humans inadequately defending a peg like, like Luna did and, their, and, and UST did, right? So the DeFi is showing actually really, really strong right now. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it was Logan, just Stremsky posted this thing, shout out Logan. Um, if you look at the total users, Uniswap opens uh, Uniswap Ave Maker Chainlink Zero X Protocol Curve ENS and DYDX combined have less than eight million users across all of those protocols. So, the, I, I love that question that you're saying is like, how do we bring users into DeFi mm -hmm. and how do we make it really user friendly? I think it has something to do with like holding your own keys and being spooked of holding your own keys and like, mm -hmm. I don't know, I don't want to hold several million bucks on like a MetaMask. That doesn't sound right. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't sound fun. <laughs> yeah, I think the my view is that at some point, um, most users will still come from a user aggregator, whether it's yeah. your fin existing financial institutions. Like most of the financial apps that you have on your phone, the the Uber bullish case here is that they start using crypto rails to to do the settlement and to be more efficient. Uh, as the world becomes more competitive, a bank might be more compelled to use DeFi rails, assuming there's insufficient regulatory certainty and clarity to settle stuff, to do it faster, better, and cheaper, to minimize compliance and overhead costs, which are increasingly uh, eating into margins, the user might not even kind of realize. The, 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 the closing loop there is you have to, there needs to be somehow a mechanism where the user is still in control and can audit and can verify without necessarily having to manage the complexity of the security piece, which is hard. Um, but um, but yeah, that that's the... It's like everything at some point there needs to be ownership and accountability of especially when you're dealing with your money um and, and most people kind of don't want to think about that and it's stressful i get yeah it. yeah i here's here's pre all of this stuff like uh imploding on itself all of cfi imploding on itself here was my thesis. I thought that DeFi would sit in the background. Users would never actually interact with DeFi. I really thought that. I thought CFI was going to sit on top of DeFi uh, and CFI would basically be the rails and the way that you got money out of the traditional capital market system into CFI and CFI would give you exposure to DeFi. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. I think I was wrong and I don't like that system anymore because when you have CFI sitting in the middle or your, your money's JP Morgan and they're using uh, crypto rails for something, you're still relying on these like centralized entities that have a lot of hu like humans uh, are greedy, right? And humans have um, make mistakes. And uh, uh, um, although to, to be fair, look, at the end of the day, I think 
the 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 challenges that I've observed in crypto over the years is that we become too idealistic without being pragmatic, and it's never like a binary. It, it's always asymptotic. Meaning, is it an? I think the question that we need to ask ourselves is is not whether it's perfectly decentralized or perfectly secure or perfectly transparent. Is it is it an improvement meaningful enough for a user? to perceive the value, whether it's 10x threshold, faster, better, cheaper, however you want to think about it. Right. And the idea is, I do believe like, even in that scenario where the bank is is kind of operating on chain, like the increased transparency, at least on a system level, um, you know, kind of mi- acts as a deterrent for people to, to act maliciously, to do things and get away with it. Um, I think, like, yeah. I think the global financial crisis, a big part of that was you didn't understand the level of exposure to a lot of financial institutions. Um, Lehman, Bear Stearns, Bank of America, AIG, the list goes on and on and on. I think what's interesting about DeFi, good and bad, is there's not a lot of transpa- privacy. And so you can very quickly, you know, people are piecing together this analysis and forensics of like all the wallets of Celsius. Um, Man, you you can't do that in a traditional financial system. Yeah, like I know I know sometimes that could be problematic because when you're bidding, for instance, like Constitution Dow against Ken Griffin, like Ken knew that Constitution Dow how X amount of dollars he just needed to bid a little bit more than that. Um, but nonetheless, like if if all these assets, real world assets, depositors, uh, deposit base, ex- all the exposure in the financial system is brought on chain, and of course you need some level of privacy here then you at least have like better transparency into the workings of the economy and the financial system that you currently don't have. And that might sound too idealistic. Hmm. I, I hope that we move there. I think if, if, if we're somehow, you wave a magic wand and you, and you en- en- enter into a, a system like that, then, then I think it's harder for pe- bad actors to get away with stuff. It's harder to abscond and do money laundering and do all kinds of stuff. Um, and I think that's why regulators would be excited and interested in this technology, like especially yeah. in places like India, where you have massive shadow economies, where you don't have the ability to even understand your GDP because all of this stuff happens through cash. And you know, uh, why wouldn't you want to have all economic activity be represented and mapped in a digital context with a digital footprint that is immutable? I know that may sound crazy and we're getting, I have, a, predi- I have a prediction. No, 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 I have a prediction for you actually. And I want your, I want long or short. Yes or no. Uh, one of the things that takes off in the next bull market is highly scalable EVM compatible privacy enabled L ones. Yeah. Uh, I think that those will be, um, uh, who just launched this Jill Carlson, shout out to Jill Carlson. They, um, are launching something called Espresso, uh, which is like a highly scalable EVM compatible private. It, it fits all three of those things. And like I, whether or not that works or not, I don't know. But like I, I know Jill, she's incredibly brilliant. Her team is incredible, incredibly brilliant. Some of the smartest minds right now are working on uh, ZKs and privacy enabled L1s, which I think becomes really, really, really important in the next bull market. Yeah. Um, shout out to Tor from Enigma, who has a secret network. Um, he uh was critical on one post that I it was he said, look, the problem is if people really valued this, like they would already be moving to my network, uh, like secret network, which allows some pri- like default privacy. Um, and I said, well, maybe like one, I think like we're still in a state of the world where 
like the, we are the users in crypto are perhaps currently today are very different than the users that are going to come in five years and will be here in five years. Like we're just beta testers, and so in many ways it's it's a it poses a challenge for existing builders because if you go out and you ask people what they want, a lot of times you're not going to get perhaps um, kind of the answer that may be correct and building a product tailored for for mass adoption. Um, which brings me to like the idea of trying to understand the rationale of the Solana team to launch a mobile phone, Android, but mobile phone of their own. And I think it requires that level of thinking to me is in more interesting because it requires stepping out a little bit of the current user base and saying, well, let's instead of designing systems where our current users in Discord want, let's zoom out and say, okay, what actually in five years time, let, let's build for that user. And okay, we're well capitalized in order to build towards that. But I think that's the that's the level of thinking that is interesting now for builders out there. Because in this current environment, I think you want to be building for, for that type of user, whether it's institutional or non-institutional. Um, and and so it's uh, it's a little bit of trying to play a game of what are they going to value uh, without necessarily understanding what they want today because they're not going to tell you they're not here. Agreed. Uh, but privacy and security is a big piece. I would agree. Agreed. I'm pulling us back to the agenda or we will not cover okay. a single thing that I said we were going to cover and people <laughs> will be mad, Santi. People will be mad. On Wednesday, uh, on Monday, Voyager, uh, just a quick update on Voyager and Three Arrows. On Monday, Voyager officially issued a notice of default to Three Arrows. Uh, on Wednesday, David Canales at Blockworks reported that Three Arrows had been ordered into liquidation by a British Virgin Islands BVI court. Uh, partners from global consulting firm Teneo Restructuring. I don't know Teneo Restructuring. Maybe they're huge. Uh, it sounds like they do restructuring. We're said to be managing Three Arrows' uh, insolvency. Three Arrows is headquartered in Singapore, um, as a lot of people know, but they're incorporated in the British Virgin Islands. So we will... Um, Blockworks is covering this really closely, uh, following this really closely, covering the news on a day-to-day -day basis. So we will keep you guys posted there. Empire is brought to you by BitMEX. With the launch of their spot exchange, BitMEX is running an insane promo right now. We wanted to give you the inside scoop. Here's the deal. For the next two months, users who trade $250 worth of crypto on BitMEX's spot exchange will be entered into their million dollar giveaway. Prizes range from thousands of dollars all the way up to $500,000. That's right, trade 250 bucks on BitMEX for a chance to personally win $500,000. Beyond the million dollar giveaway, new users can also get up to 200 BMEX, B-M-E-X, that's BitMEX's new token coming soon, just by creating an account and going through KYC and trading. So you can actually get BitMEX tokens just by creating an account and trading. The more you trade, the higher your chances of winning. What are you waiting for? Go to bitmex.com today, sign up for an account, bitmex.com. You wanna talk Bitcoin mining? I think yeah. there's a, uh, I think there's We mentioned that in the prior thing. episode, so let's definitely uh, cover that. It's important. Yeah, so uh, let me give an update on kind of Bitcoin mining. Um, Ryan Swanson is a BlockWorks analyst, uh, an analyst on the research team. And he's been really, really helpful to break this stuff down. So if you guys don't follow Ryan Swanson, go check him out. Uh, usually here's what happens. Uh, price goes down, Bitcoin price goes down, miner go, miners go offline, difficulty adjusts. Now though, uh, what's different from 20, the 2018, 2019 bear is the amount of credit in the Bitcoin mining system. A, there are uh, lenders like BlockFi and blockchain.com and uh, DCG uh, with their with foundry mining and uh, 
a bunch of other folks in Genesis as well, right? Now they have access to credit and now they're publicly traded companies. Uh, so they have even more access to credit. So again, usually price goes down, miners go offline, difficulty adjusts, new equilibrium found, miners go back online. Now though, because they have access to credit, they can operate at a really, really significant loss. So price goes down, miners don't go offline, difficulty stays where it was, miners start losing money faster and faster and faster than they otherwise would be. Um, the lending business uses ASICs as collateral, right? So if you lend to a big, a big miner, um, A, they're gonna take your Bitcoin if you can't pay back the debts, but if you can't pay back with Bitcoin, they're gonna take your ASICs. However, lenders right now don't wanna repo the, the ASICs uh, because you'd flood the market with a bunch of ASICs, which would drive the mm -hmm. price of ASICs down and you'd sell them for pennies on the dollar. Mm -hmm. So- um, yeah, And historically, the depreciation curve of these machines is pretty high. It is Bitmain high. and some other yeah. folks. Like I, ne I never like got really comfortable investing in miners or operating one of my own. Like it was like unless you were like mining in 2010. Like industrial grade mining is is for very very small sophisticated players, and I just don't think that that's where historically I think you would much better just buying the underlying spot and like you would outperform yeah. those mining operations. Yeah. Now the 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 trick there, of course, is like rising energy prices is is caught a lot of these folks off guard very very quickly. Uh, combined with falling prices, you know, Bitcoin's now down six, seven percent today. It's below twenty yet again, and um, so of course that all of that is uh, it puts further stress in in the operations of these miners and and you know them being potentially in technical default with these loans, right? Because the collateral yeah. is just not there. I think the one uh, the we were talking about this beforehand. I was like, oh, I think like Russia and like the pipelines and like rising energy costs are going to be a big impact on this. I was I was thinking about it as you were just saying that. I'm pretty sure how it works, and we'll have to bring some Bitcoin miners on this, is that um, the miners typically have long-term energy contracts, so they actually maybe aren't as susceptible to price spikes. So I think I'm, I might have been wrong when we were talking pre-recording. Um, I think the primary factors that go into the profit profitability of a miner are basically power, yeah, power prices and CapEx. Um, and CapEx is the cost of the mining rig, and the market is dominated really by two large Chinese players, right? MicroBT mm -hmm. and Bitmain. Um, and the, the, they just basically just have a duopoly and that mm -hmm. grants them this like, gives them this really strong pricing power. So even when prices are going down, they maybe don't, they aren't as price sensitive to the market. Yeah, although to be fair, even though yes, you're hedging that like you have long-term energy like contracts in place, like look what's happening in the UK now, like they're, they're con contemplating shutting down, um, sending natural gas to Europe in the summer because yeah. they're already anticipating rise, like a shortage during the winter. And so they want to stockpile more natural gas. And so I think what you're seeing now, not to get too much into macro and geopolitical stuff, is a lot of countries are now very much focused on safeguarding resources internally um, and, and make sure that they have enough and, and in, like near shoring. And, and of course, like COVID and the war in Ukraine has just highlighted like this globalization trend is, is being pulled back as countries realize, look, we need to secure access to resources internally and, and make sure that you know, we rein in inflation. And a big part of that is, you know, like bringing back and, and making sure that, you know, you have the ability to access a lot of the stuff to contain inflation. And so, uh, in many ways, as I as I say this, I'm like, why? I think you, the only probably sector in the economy that's going to like really grow, and one of the things that I would be looking at is um, like the manufacturing index, like domestic manufacturing index for a lot of these countries um, might might uh, if you're a player there, there might be opportunities there because the governments might extend contracts to you because they are so so have been so reliant on global supply chains that are now 
being put into question right. and fragile because of the whole geopolitical situation and also just economically, like it's not very viable anymore. Yeah. Uh, I have two friends who operate, big, or I think they're, one's like SVP of ops and one is COO of, of these big Bitcoin miners, um, two publicly traded Bitcoin miners. And it is an incredibly hard business to run uh, because you have to, you have to think not six to 12 months out, but you have to think much further out. And like one example of this is um, even though demand has really waned for Bitcoin recently, miners are continuing to add machines to their fleets, uh, which you can see by the kind of the growth of the global hash rate, the disconnect between the price and the hash rate stems from this like 12 to 18 month delivery lag for uh, Bitmain's S9s, S19s. I forget what the current S9, model is. Well, S9 was a few years ago, but yeah. S19, I think it's S19 for the Bitcoin S, uh, Bitmain S19. So there's this 12 S19. to 18 month delivery, right? Uh, lag. So a lot of the hash rate coming online today was ordered like 18 months ago during the period when like Bitcoin was hitting all time highs at $65,000. However, like let's say you actually get these S19s, electricity costs are rising, Bitcoin's price is dropping dramatically, uh, miners are struggling to make their interest payments. Uh, you have these struggling miners now who receive their pre-ordered rigs that they ordered at Bitcoin all-time highs. They don't even want to turn these things on because they'd operate at a loss. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a really so. What ends up happening is like the miners have to start selling off Bitcoin on the balance sheet to meet the debt obligations. This pushes Bitcoin down farther, which puts even more financial strain on the mining industry yeah so this like that's an excellent point which is why i've look this is a part of the bigger discussion of the the distinction between proof of work and proof of stake but i felt that look these two systems when you compare them the biggest challenge that i see with proof of work is the idea that you constantly have an operator there that has that is constantly selling to recoup and make to recoup capex and also make a profit and that selling pressure can be can be it varies, right? But in this current environment, just further exacerbates the downtrend. And proof of stake is you don't have that pressure, right? Because it's it's effectively capital owners are the ones that are staking and earning um, some some you know some proof of stake yield. Um, but it, it it's very different. I think one is an owner and the other one is is not so much an owner, meaning he's just there to profit um, as quickly as possible. Whereas if you own the underlying you're you're not as sensitive or eager to sell necessarily. And so it has felt to me that like proof of stake, when I first heard about it, it was just a more sustainable model from a security budget perspective, but also from an alignment of owners and operators of the network that are uh, operators, meaning, you, you know, you're providing security through validation. And it's just felt to me that proof of stake from that perspective was much more sustainable model um, than proof of work. Um, mm. But but th th that's like a, a topic for like three hours. You know discussion. what? We're gonna. Br I'll I'll bring. We'll have a Bitcoin mining episode. Let's. I'll I'll bring. Uh, yeah, yeah. My two buddies on on the show. Um, I think what ends up happening is like similar to FTX and CFI right now. This is going to lead to just a huge consolidation where the investors and miners with healthy balance sheets end up swallowing the mm -hmm. really highly leveraged uh, Bitcoin miners. And, and yeah. And, and, and let me ask you a question. Then, one of the biggest criticisms about proof of stake is a concentration. You know, there's big whales out there, and 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 yeah. it's just like like a feudal system of sorts, where like you know owners of, of Ethereum it's fairly you know it gets concentrated. But like, is that any different from miners? Like the control of the hash rate? Like what is it? Like two, the top three miners control? Like if they collude, they could theoretically attack the network. Like they have greater than fifty one percent hash rate. Uh, in this environment, like I don't know, we should probably monitor this and track this. Like the concentration of hash rate among the larger players. 
probably goes up because those are the guys that survive, right? The small guys are really the ones that get squeezed. They're not as sophisticated. They haven't hedged as well. They don't have as, as much access to loans and, and capital providers, and they're in a more precarious situation financially. And so if those guys go away, there's just a greater concentration among the, on, among the pools, uh, among the big players. Like, uh, so it's just something to monitor and keep, keep, um, keep tabs on. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, what's the con? What, I think the um, who owns the biggest pool right now? I think it's Foundry. I think DCG's mining arm Foundry owns like maybe twenty percent market share. Ant Pool and F Two Pool have like fifteen percent market share. And then I think you've got a couple of folks down at like ten percent, which is uh, Binance Pool. I think Binance actually has like a ten percent mining pool, and Poolin has like ten or eleven. So, anyways. Mm-hmm. I'm not the best person to talk about this. We will bring some folks on. Here's my prediction. My far out prediction is that uh, just like you're seeing uh, Goldman uh, come in, City come in and try to scoop up these assets on the cheap, uh, like the CFI assets, like Celsius and uh, folks like that. This is the first time they've really made a massive push from a large balance sheet acquisition point of view. Mm -hmm. This could be the first time you ever see traditional uh, oil and gas companies and big energy companies come into Bitcoin mining through uh, uh, scooping up some of these Bitcoin miners for pennies on the dollar. It's not likely, but that mm-hmm. would be an interesting thing to see play out. So I'm looking at the just back to mining pool stats, Foundry yeah. and pool, F2 pool, pool in and Binance. If you combine all those five, you they basically have 60% of all the hash rate. And the top three, by the way, 49 yeah, and it's been the and it's been this like it's Foundry and Pool and F two Pool, collectively they have roughly fifty percent of the hash rate out there. Um, now that number probably goes much higher, uh, assuming that the other tail end of folks that are kind of insignificant go away. Keep in mind though, like concentration may seem like a threat to the decent, uh, may seem like a threat to Bitcoin mining. However, mining pools don't control the network and don't have a lot of. Don't have a lot of clout in this sense because any miner can just quickly change pools, right? If there's any hint of foul play, such as like if someone starts like censoring mm-hmm. Bitcoin transactions, yeah. you can really quickly fair. just change. change no, pools. fair point. Like I'm not trying to yeah. fight here. Like I'm not saying like the network's going to be attacked tomorrow. It has been like this for a while. There are reasons why, to your point, that and a number of other reasons why it doesn't get it. Like you have kind of comfort and validity that it's not going to get attacked. So yeah. this is this is by no means a fight. It's just it's just not ideal that you have this situation. But there's always it's just important for folks to appreciate that is all I'm trying yeah. to say. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, all right, let's get into uh, the man, the myth, Arthur Hayes. By the way, do you know Do you know Arthur? Can we bring him on this podcast? We, we probably can. Uh, if he's listening, we'd love to have you. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we'll reach out. Uh, floaters and July 4th weekend predictions from Arthur Hayes. Arthur published an article on June 16th called Floaters, where he talked about the contagion in the crypto markets and the doom of many existing crypto funds. He, ret- he refers to the market crash contagion victims as floaters. Uh, you have to read the article to figure out why they're called floaters. It is not pretty, uh, is a little hint. And so far, the article has been uh, right on target. He predicts, Arthur predicts this final showdown between panicked sellers and a bidless market to happen on the upcoming July 4th weekend. So again, he wrote this two or three weeks ago. Uh, We are now at the July 4th weekend. Um, And here's kind of, I think there are like three or four reasons why, right? By, By today, when we're recording this, the Fed will have enacted this big 
rate hike is what he says. And sure enough, they did that. July 4th falls on a Monday and is a federal banking holiday. This is, as he says, the perfect setup for yet another mega crypto dump. There are three ingredients to this dump. A, risk assets will again rediscover their dislike for tightening USD liquidity conditions sponsored by the Fed. B, crypto funds must raise fiat to satisfy redemption requirements by continuing to sell any liquid asset, liquid crypto asset. We are definitely starting to see this across some of the tier one and tier two funds. You can see them on chain selling uh, liquid crypto assets for cash to satisfy redemptions. And three, even during this time, no fiat can be deployed until Tuesday, July 5th, because all the banks are shut down because of the holiday. So uh, he calls it the perfect setup for a mega crypto dump. I'm curious to get your take on this. Yeah, well, weekends weekends have historically been times of low uh, volume, like thinly and, and a lot of volatility. Um, so uh, yeah, I would exacerbate by the long weekend. I think uh, Q2 numbers are gonna start showing up, right? I think like, uh, when is it that we technically, I mean, Q2 numbers come out, and I think you'll be in a technical recession, uh, which you know I think people yeah. already know. But it, when you see the when you see the headlines, right? When the headlines it, come out, yeah, exactly. It always sinks in. Here, here's here, when you know. when do funds have to start sending? Um, so, like, let's say you're an investor in like a Pantera or a Parify mm. or a Framework, like any of these like big crypto funds. Like, when do they actually send their statements to investors? Is it a week it's after a, the quarter no, closes? No, a month? Uh, it, it's a great question. It really depends because uh, a lot of times. You know, I'm an investor in a number of funds, and some take at least a couple of weeks after the month close to report. You got to imagine it might be, uh, they might be uh, pushing that deadline out a little longer this year. I'm, I don't know if that's the case, but um, <laughs> but their fund administrators take time to like reconcile yeah. and, and issue fund statements. Um, around redemptions, it, it also varies. Um, it's definitely like some funds have just a notice period, which say that like a quarter, say that you want to redeem. Um, you put your notice when you get your statement in February. Um, now you might not be able to do that as easily. You might have to wait three months, six months to get to get your money. Um, it just depends on how these funds are structured. A lot of them do have flexibility to to do like only some some are quarterly, some are annual, some are uh, semi annual redemptions. I'm not sure. I think like more more funds in crypto because of volatility and. Historically, what we've seen in the space, try to build in as much buffer to have time to to sell these positions in an orderly manner if, if there are mm. redemptions. Wait, so explain um, this to me. Like what what actually like when you when we hear about so, fund so, redemptions. So, so, so Jason, like, hypothetically, someone you, call, inve- you invest I'm in I'm an fund. investor. Okay. You're an investor sure. in fund A. Sure. You want your money because whatever, you want to take money out. Um, you got your statement, you got your say that you got your May statement, you just got it, actually. Probably, or you got it a few weeks. You say, hey, you know what? I want to de-risk. I want my money back. You call them and say, I put in a redemption notice. And you probably are not, in most cases, are not going to get that money. You have to kind of wait probably, I would say, at least a quarter. Um, and And so, you know, that puts you in August, September timeframe. And if you're um, ahead of the fund, right? Like, let's say when you were at Parify, someone calls you up. They're like, Santi, I need to de-risk. I want, I want, I have 10 million bucks in your fund. I want to take 5 million out. Does that turn into a sales call? And that's like, look, Jason, I get you want to de-risk, like keep your money with us. And it turns into walking them through the markets, calming them down a little bit. Mm-hmm. You get on the phone. Um, like, A, so is that kind of, is that kind of how those usually go? And then B, let's say I'm like, 
I don't care, Santi, I still want to pull my money. Do you basically say you you have to you have to give the money back based on whatever the the agreement says on like semi semi annual or annual? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm not going to speak on on Parify's account this or any fund. General, not, not general not, statement. Not yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it, it also depends. Um, some funds have the ability to exercise what is called uh, a gate, meaning, and you saw this a lot in the global financial crisis where a lot of funds got, like in traditional markets, the redemption is much faster. Like you can redeem in a month and, and get your money back. Sometimes they have two di- interesting provisions that end up becoming more important. And LPs kind of learned this the hard way in the global financial crisis is sometimes when a lot of investors try to redeem their money all at once. The fund manager has the ability to pause redemptions, what is known as a gate, meaning for them to like prevent the situation where they need a force sell if they don't want to sell. Mm. Um, and so that is, of course, very friendly for the manager because in an environment like today, you could imagine a lot of investors, if they have the ability to redeem, which many may not because some of these funds have multiple year lockups one-year lockup, two, three-year lockups for the hedge funds, right? If you're a venture fund, it's a closed-in fund. You can't take your money out until after 10 years or so. So it's for the liquid funds out there that um, that may may block the redemption notice and say, guys, we're not going to give you your money back. It's super volatile. We feel that you know we're going to exercise this provision that protects us from from actually legally being you know required to give you your money back. Uh, until we feel that it's good market conditions. Um, now, that that may be contested and can be, get ugly, but for the most part, let's just assume that most funds in crypto don't have this gate because sophisticated institutional players don't like it. Then yes, you you have to honor the redemption notice and give yeah. them the money uh, whenever that is, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. So I think that brings us back to what we're I've been looking at over the last, uh, you know, in the first episode of this started in May, like I said, look, there are some funds that are probably going to blow up. And you said, are they going to blow up because they just blew up like, you know, they they took a lot of leverage? Or are they going to blow up or just, and I, or because they closed shop because of the high watermark? And I said both. And so we're, we've seen someone like Three Hours blew up because they were taking a whole lot of leverage. They may, lost a lot of money on a couple of trades, GBTCR, Luna, and so they try to make that back. Uh, and of course, the market turned in a very nasty way. And so you blow up because of that. So there, that's been that. And then the other, itch, which I think is why I'm cautious on the liquid side of things, is this point, which is there's going to be a lot of redemptions, yeah. um, I think. And redemptions cause for selling. Yes. Yeah. Un- yeah. Un- unless, of course, you raise, like, yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, it is for selling. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, let's cover high watermark to make sure everyone understands high watermarks. Can you give your, what, what is the high watermark? Yeah. I, mind you, I'm not like an expert on this stuff, uh, but my general understanding is, uh, it, let's say that the fund was up massively um, last year. And so the fund goes from a hundred to a thousand. And that's like your NAV at the end of, uh, at the, end of the year. Um, this year you're down 50%. So you're back to 500. Um, and so, and so that you have to go back to a thousand in order to, to charge carry. Now it brings us to the question, what, how do funds make money? Two ways, one management fee, which is typically the order of 2% based on AUM or capital commitments. Um, and the second is where the real 
opportunity is, is on performance, meaning 20% typically on, on any performance, any gain above your capital contribution. Um, and so as an investor, you saw your statement last year and said, oh, wow, my account, say that you're just one investor. My account is, was worth 1000 at the end of the year. Now it's worth $500. Uh, the watermark is if the fund is manager is able to go back to 1000 you would have said, oh, wow, they just made a 500 profit this year. Let me take 20% of that. So 100. But the reality is you, you actually don't get any carry because you just, again, the, the high watermark is that, just as the name implies, is 1,000. So it, it moves up as as you kind of mark your book, mark to market or whatever. Um, then you need to go back to 1,000 and anything above that is where you actually start making money. So what is that actually? That is difficult for a lot of funds, right, in a very volatile asset class like crypto because, you know, there are two, three years as we have been where, you know, you just kind of, you know, it was a great time to be an investor in technology <laughs> generally. But now um, a lot of funds, not just in crypto, but like Chase Coleman, for instance, like Tiger is down 50% on the year. Melvin Capital, which uh, was caught on the other wrong side of, of, the, of the meme stock trade, had to close shop actually because you said, look, when you're down that much, like what is the probability? I think as a fund manager, you say, okay, it's going to take a lot to go back up to that high watermark. Like I need to make a three X and any, to then potentially start making money. Now there was two ways to kind of mitigate this uh, problem. One is you raise more capital at the bottom. So right now you say, God, this is a generational buying opportunity. Let me excuse me, let me go try to raise a bunch of funds. And on the funds that you raised today, you are actually earning carry on, because, uh, you know, they start they re- they start at a much lower bar, right? Um, the problem is, who's going to give you the money? In this environment, it's probably really hard, as a lot of people are kind of licking their wounds and not willing to allocate until kind of things settle down. Um, but, you know, um, that's not to say money's still looking to be allocated. Like you have, you know, Funds like Blackstone and Oak Tree that have raised some pretty interesting funds lately, traditional markets. Uh, in crypto, not so much, I think. I think the fundraising environment's kind of weak, <laughs> although I haven't looked at the numbers, but I would probably gather that there's not a lot of money looking to allocate to the asset class for now. Um, so yeah, hopefully that was a 101, but you let me know if, there, if there's any... Thing That's helpful. Let me almost repeat it back to you to make sure I fully understand it. So basically the high watermark is the highest value that a fund has ever reached. Uh, let's say I'm a hedge fund manager. I make two and 20, right? I'm getting 2% of the of the value in the fund. Uh, the 20 is the performance fee, right? I can't charge my 20% performance fee until the fund reaches the prior peak. So this almost gives the incentive for funds to close when we're in a market like this, because let, let, let's use some numbers. If a fund was $200 million, and now it's $50 million after the crash, the fund needs to return 300% before the GPs can collect any profits, right? However, if they just close the fund, restart with the 50 million, and then profit $30 million, they made that same that same return. So mm-hmm. uh, it of becomes- Of course, the, it's a reputation game, right? It is a reputation, you know, yeah, of, of course. course. So, But the other incentive that can be out of whack is the level of risk-taking that they, that is there once you understand that you need to really blow it out of the water to then make some carry, right? Because in, 
when you say, wow, I need to make a greater than two, three, four X in order to see some performance fee, <laughs> then it is what probably happened at three hours is my understanding is you do these revenge trades where you take way more risk than perhaps your framework wants you to. And, and that's where things can really go. That's where it gets really ugly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that's something to, I mean, it's just inherent in, in a lot of, uh, in a lot of hedge funds. Yeah. On paper. Yeah. I think it, I think it's all about the reputation risk because on paper, it makes more sense for a manager to close the fund, liquidate all the assets, then raise another fund, purchase the same assets at a bargain price in a few weeks or months time and actually profit from the revival of the crypto market. Technically on paper, if you put put it on an Excel, it makes sense. You lose your reputation though. And that's probably why folks don't end up doing this. I think um, the it's really also important. I think it was Mark Yusko sent this to Mike um, or they talked about it on their podcast on the margin, but there's a stock loss recovery formula that people don't often understand. So if you lose 10%, if you're down 10%, you need the asset to go up 11% to make your money back. So, right basically equal, basically the same. If you're down 20%, you need to recover 25%. So again, similar numbers. If you go down 50%, you need something to rise 100% to break even. The numbers get really drastic as you fall down to where we're at in this bear market. If you're down 70%, you need something to go up 233%, right? So it's not equal. It's not like goes down 70%, comes up 70%. If you're down 90%, you need something to go up 900% Mm. and... If you, it's, it's not a linear relationship. It's not linear, right? If you bought mm. Lux token at the top and you're down like 98%, uh, you have to, I think the percentage rise is like 9,900% yeah, uh, that you like need to a, come back. Exponential relationship. Yeah. So yeah. I think the formula is like, like let's say you're down 80, 80%. It's like 80 divided by one minus 80 over 100, I think is the formula. Mm-hmm. So um, it's like percentage loss divided by one minus the percentage loss mm-hmm. over hundred. Uh, basically if you're down 70%, 80%, 90%, it is going to be a long time before you make money as a fund mm-hmm. manager. So now, of course, um, a lot of funds struggle with this in, in 20, in the last cycle. Um, and, and some of them closed shop, others didn't, and were able to over time raise money and weather the storm and, it made a made a decent like an outstanding return. Um, you know, crypto markets have always surprised me. Uh, you know, anytime I think I understand them to some degree, I I'm proven wrong. Um, and so, do you believe? I think if you're a manager today in that seat, which is really tough, I think you're kind of left wondering: Are we going to continue to see these really outsized returns and great years that make up for this? Um. And, and or are we going to become more and more institutionalized and more competitive as more funds enter the space as we saw last cycle um, and just the ability to make outsized returns over time should should compress right like in the early days of private equity like the the, the, the early funds like KKR and and a few others like really made a killing like the first buyouts but then over time you know these returns get compressed right? The asset class becomes more competitive. Now, I think crypto still has many, many, many years to run just by virtue of its less than a trillion dollar asset class. But still, you know, I think you're left wondering what is going to be really the return potential at scale and size for a lot of these funds in the next cycle. Yeah. Yeah. We'll keep an eye on it. Um, I want to get into Maker 
actually, because there are mm-hmm. two votes that are pretty interesting. And I think there's one vote that ends in about 20 minutes from now. So I'll, I'll pull that up as I'm talking about it. Um, governance shows its true colors during a bear, right? And I think actually, um, you, you, you know, we Wait, talked what, about this. What, what governance? <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. <laughs> so uh, last week we talked very briefly about Solen spun up an emergency DAO to appropriate money from a whale who was at the risk of being liquidated. Uh, then I think they canceled the decision. Uh, Bancor suddenly removed impermanent loss protection from existing LPs who wanted to w- withdraw. Uh, Cosmos is in this intense discussion to approve like I think it's a minuscule amount. It's like 500k to invest in applications for liquid staking. Um, uh, Maker has two interesting votes going on right now. One is this highly contentious vote that is framed as VCs versus the community, where the VCs want to implement a new core unit that would function as a board of directors type structure that the quote unquote broader community argued was centralizing and against Maker's ethos. Um, Maker, for those who don't know, have these uh, core units, which are basically like selected groups that are given a budget to oversee what some aspect of the protocol. Uh, and core units help prevent this like chaotic micro governance. They add efficiency to the process. It's actually gone quite well, from my understanding. Um, there, I think 60% of the vote voted against the proposal, 40% voted in favor of the proposal. Um, I haven't dug into it too much, but that's one interesting proposal that I'm looking at as it just like, it brings the DAO almost more back to the structure of what a publicly traded company looks like. Um, the next vote is, hold on, let me pull this up because I think the vote is happening in real time. Let's see. Uh, Maker is voting to invest 500 million into different investment strategies to help them get through the bear market. Um, let me pull this up. Uh, they are allocating to short-term, short term, uh, US short treasuries, 80% allocation and investment grade corporate bonds, 20%. So they're putting 400 million. Oh, the vote's gonna pass. All right, 56%. All right, this vote I think is gonna pass. So Maker will put five out of 500 million, they'll put 400 million into US short-term treasuries, 100 million into investment grade corporate bonds. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, I'd be is, curious like how they are actually going to invest that capital. Like which entity? Yeah, I mean, Structurally, I, like, I actually love this. A, this is in, in order to open an account as a as a mm. DAO. Like you need a, I mean, you need you need to like have a registered company, and I think they had dissolved the Maker Foundation at some point. They did. And so yeah. I'm curious, like how they are going to execute this proposal mm. well we have um we have some folks from maker coming on the podcast i think next week or the week after so that'll okay, be really great. interesting time to talk to them about yeah. it I, I love this i think this helps them compete with uh usdc um in the next bull market because you're becoming this like fiat collateralized stablecoin, which is um they're already holding a ton of usdc anyways um and honestly with yields higher than zero now it makes sense to hold t-bills directly and get the I mean, yield rather than only hold usdc <laughs> but yeah, well we're also where treasuries are yielding more than DeFi rates exactly yeah i, I would suspect te- a lot of credit it's today? interesting that it passed Two. i would suspect like a lot of you know i still remember in the early days of maker um there's like a, a very fierce dis- debate around onboarding other types of collateral that are more centralized than pure eth and of course, when USDC during March of 2020, during the COVID crash, where it was it was a very precarious situation of the network, and we, you know, the the community voted to add USDC as collateral. Uh, it was it was very contentious. I think a lot of people like 
felt that that was a detraction from the original vision of Maker, which is truly kind of decentralized money um, and and censorship resistant. And now, of course, it's uh, this is just moving in the other direction. So, hmm. um, yeah, I think it just goes to show, like, I think the people that are voting and have a lot of MKR are institutional players that are perhaps more practical and not as, I guess, idealistic as, as some folks are in crypto. Um, which would want to probably go back to the original version of Maker, which is purely like single collateral die, yeah, by ETH. Um, this is so I love I love the- I love looking at the votes in real time. Like you can see, Gauntlet abstained from the vote. They have three percent voting power. Penn Blockchain Group, which is students, mm-hmm. and Blockchain uh, Columbia at Columbia both have one percent each. Flipside Crypto has nine percent of the vote. Um, this is I I, I just love. Uh, Monet Supply has 0.3%. He voted just to do short-term treasuries. Love looking at this stuff. It's really interesting. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. What else? I feel like we have more to talk about, Santi. Oh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, you had some tweets I want to ask you about um, okay. in terms of what will be the next catalyst for crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, let me pull up your tweet. You said, what will be the next bull market catalyst in crypto? 2008 to 2012, non-sovereign store value, aka Bitcoin. 2014 to 2017, digitally native global capital formation, ICOs, uh, and ETH. 2019 to 2021, decentralized programmable transfers of value, DeFi and NFTs. 2023 to 2025, killer integrated apps, fun games. What's the update on the, like, A, like, why tweet this? What is the thought behind it? I know yeah. you love games, but like, why do you really do you like, is that how strong is this conviction? And be like, mm-hmm. how do you play that when it's like, all right, invest in fun games, you know? Yeah. I was thinking, and a few folks have asked me like, what is going to trigger the next cycle? I think very much so there were singular points um, that kind of detonated a cycle, like, uh, like started a bull market. Like it was DeFi, like compound private liquidity mining ignited this whole interest in decentralized finance and then nfts after that now of course it's it's unfair statement because there's a lot that goes under the hood during a bear market during periods that are quieter in a not bull market that that facilitate and are kind of prerequisites i think substrates in order to catalyze a bull market you know what i mean and so like nfts existed from like crypto kitties i think were marked the top last cycle because it just for like it just showed like how unequipped these networks were to handle any degree of activity. And we went back to a drawing board and, you know, I think the killer use case was, first killer use case of Ethereum was DeFi. And so looking back, this last cycle I think was pretty interesting because DeFi was, was I think, interesting, although not a lot of users, but nonetheless, like, I think still the core premise of DeFi is very much there and will work. And I think has sparked the interest of traditional financial institutions and it's not going to go away even if you strip away all the ponzonomics that aside there are some really exciting stuff in DeFi, and we shouldn't lose sight of that but that's not going to get us to the next that's not going to get the next 100 million users excited which i think is what you need to shoot for in the next cycle and so i think it's a combination like nfts i think was like towards the end of this cycle i think that obviously prices are down volume is down uh, but I don't think the interest of a lot of brands and, and folks like Shopify and all this stuff goes away. Um, so NFTs, I think we're just scratching the surface of what is possible. And so if you combine that with games is what probably detonates the next cycle. Mm. Um, 
I don't know. I, I'm, this is why I'm excited about games because, again, I think, I hope and I think that the next cycle is where we get a reasonable degree of mainstream adoption. And I think that's going to come from a game. Yeah. Probably, most likely. It's definitely not going to be coming directly from a DeFi protocol. Like, no. Probably not. Yeah. There might be high value transfers with DeFi, but, you know, I, I, I struggle to see a bull market, the start of a bull market being marked by DeFi, I think it comes from a really fun game. Hmm. I mean, I think the start of the bull market won't actually have anything to do with anything inside of crypto. It'll be just... Yeah, I mean, like when the Fed decides <laughs> to like, you know, back off a bit and like go back to risk on. <laughs> I mean, you basically... Like the Fed, the, the here's the narrative of the Fed until November, until the 2022 elections is fighting inflation, right? Once, uh, like I think the Dems will get absolutely smoked in November. So the Dems will most likely lose the House and the Senate, which creates this kind of like lame duck two-year period for the Biden administration. Nothing gets passed. It's all political energy gets focused on the narratives that play well with voters in 2024. American voters care about one thing, their money. What do the Dems do? They have the one tool of pumping money into the markets. They juice the markets uh, to try to win votes. The easiest way to accomplish that goal is to print money uh, and even though it hurts inflation in the long term, and while we just saw we're seeing inflation play out, I think uh, politicians are short-minded and end up focusing on the 2024 elections and uh, the narrative of the Fed switches from fighting inflation to pumping money back into the markets. And I think that sparks uh, basically just like back to a risk-on market where folks are investing in tech stocks and folks are investing in crypto and uh, money usually drives the narratives instead of the other way around. Yeah. That's perhaps like so. a more cynical view of, of crypto and which, which by the way, like, uh, I have been thinking about like yeah. this, uh, as you know, no, no, like but a, it's everything. It's not just crypto. No. Yeah. I mean, in, in many ways, like, it's like, what's the narrative around even like big tech stocks right now? It's like, oh, they didn't work like that. I'm like, I, come on guys. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. Um, I do think that, uh, we should probably take the next, this time to focus on, on understanding really and doing some introspection and saying, what is it that we're working towards? And what is the ultimate goal as a builder, as a founder, as a participant in this community? And I think in many ways, bear markets are quieter times to do some reflecting, not necessarily beat yourself up too much for what has happened, uh, but certainly learn. And I think there is a lot, certain deficits that we need to patch, right, in, in these systems. Scalability, probably top of mind, privacy, better yep. onboarding solutions, more transparency, more accountability, more self-policing um, better, um, you know, security, however that you want to define that, whether it's better auditing systems or, you know, simulations, uh, to, to prevent users from being easily fished and keen, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot that needs to, you know, we need to work on. And candidly, I don't look at that and I'm de de like, if you're listening to this and you're saying, God, that sounds so difficult to overcome. I'm like, <laughs> honestly, I mean, that, that is the opportunity. And that was what inspired this tweet is like, there is, I think, a lot of stuff that needs to be built. Look at it. Look at it this way: if you're running a steel mill, there's not a lot in the industry other than maybe making scraping a little like margin out there and being like right on some stuff. But there's not a lot of innovation that needs to happen. I think this is just the excitement in this industry. It's so so early, and you know, increasingly prices also reflect that even more. Um, but there is a lot of stuff that needs to be built. Um, and, and so, uh, that is the opportunity that is, I guess it goes to right. the meme of the best companies. Chris Dixon had a great tweet about this is the best companies typically tend to be built during times like this. And, and so, uh, you know, 
the I'm not demoralized in any way. I think I'm going to be, as you know, I'm active in, in trying to find those people that are looking to come into the space and, and build this stuff, uh, which is exciting. It's hard. Smart people want to work on difficult problems. Yeah, it is hard. I mean, look, zooming out, using Bitcoin as a proxy for the industry, it's grown at an 11-year rate of two and a half times a year, right? We're in a short-term bear market here. And anyone who's owned Bitcoin over for a three-year period has made money throughout history, right? And the internet itself is 50 years 50 years old, right? We have decades more mm-hmm. to go for this to work. I think um, I told folk, I told you I was going to talk about DeFi. I think um, I'm just, st- I think it is so impressive what DeFi has been able to do in the last few months when all hell is breaking loose in crypto. I know yields are really low, but yields were artificially pumped high. DeFi is working so well right now. The smart contracts are executing. Um, I think now is the time to rediscover the, uh, I think it was Arthur Hayes who said this, like the merits of category defining DeFi projects and dApps that have been dumped indiscriminately alongside this, as he put it, not my words, uh, copy pasta trash, right? There exists a universe of projects that are like category leaders that will allow us to build an entirely new decentralized financial system. They're down like 80 to 95% from their late 2021 all-time highs. Uh, they have actual users that spend real capital to access the services. Um, and they are the first projects that have defined how like key DeFi services should be offered. And yeah. I don't know, I just, I'm really excited about some of these like old school blue chip DeFi projects right now. I um, I totally agree with you. Uh, there, there is, this is, I mean, it's a way, I think the name of the game and is surviving. Uh, and having the possibility to to be in a position of strength, uh, no matter what kind of market conditions we're in, and uh, I think there's a lot of things to be excited about. Uh, I think there will be a lot of cleanup that needs to happen in the space. We're gonna have some good episodes coming up that talk about a lot of the things that that need to happen. You know, on the regulatory side, making sure that regulators understand the distinction between DeFi and non-DeFi. You know, Celsius is different than Maker, um, much different than yep. Aave and Compound. And I think we've done a lot of progress over the last couple of years. And I think there's a really good adage in crypto that says, I think we should measure our we should we should measure the progress of this industry at the bottom of the progressive kind of bottoms of, of the of, of the subsequent cycles, right? Uh, and I think we if we look back, uh, have we bottomed? Not sure. But we've made some really tangible progress in the last three years, four years. Yeah. Um, and and more importantly, we've ignited and sparked interest in crypto from people that had no business and no interest in crypto, particularly NFTs um, and games. And and so anyways, we should continue to not a ramble. We should continue to be always very skeptical. I think people are now increasingly, increasingly skeptical. Maybe like it's a difference between being skeptical and cynical. I think we should always be very skeptical, but cynicism kind of doesn't kind of, being a cynic to me is just someone like, that's on the sidelines. It's like your economics professor, right? He teaches you about risk, but the guy has never invested, or him or she has never invested in the stock market, has never been two seconds away from being liquidated. And you know, like this problem that I had in school is like, how the hell am I supposed to learn from someone that doesn't have practical experience? And so the nice thing about crypto is, yeah, sometimes you learn uh, through experience and by fire or, 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 you know, learning from others. Uh, and so I think that's a, the beauty of these spaces. I think the rate of innovation is much faster. In open source systems, everything is kind of out there. And so we learn from these mistakes. Cycles probably are compressed. And, you know, um, that's, I think, the the exciting part here is, and I hope is that this is true. And 
tell me if you disagree, is the rate of innovation is much faster in open source systems. And so uh, maybe the rate of adoption won't be. And I think that may have been one of the errors that, that I constantly challenge. My own assumption is you may be building stuff, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the adoption is going to be faster than historically, like a lot of these technolo technological revolutions, like the internet really in earnest took like 20 years to reach, you know, pretty decent adoption. Crypto is only 10 years in. Does this mean that it's going to take 20 years or is it, or is it around the corner? You know, probably, probably it's going to take, you know, 15, 20 years, right? Um, but there's going to be a rapid chaotic innovation and, and some of that uh, is certainly being felt right now. Those are some big numbers, Santi, 10, 20 years. Let's talk about the next couple of weeks. We have some really good episodes coming out. You, there are a lot of new listeners. Our, we had a, this is yeah, the, the most record, uh, I think it was a record week last week, record month for the podcast and uh, the biggest down, the biggest, most downloaded episodes we've ever had. So a lot of new folks, if you aren't subscribed, subscribe to the show. Here are the upcoming episodes. We have Sunny from Osmosis and Derek from Reverie coming out on Monday, talking about Osmosis. Uh, and Cosmos, super interesting episode. We have Eric Peters coming up after that. Uh, we have Jan, the founder of Step In. Matthew Ball, uh, for those who are into the metaverse. Uh, Matthew Ball is probably the smartest person on the metaverse out there. We've got Eric Voorhees. We've got Bill Barhai. We've got Dan Matuszewski from uh, CMS. We've got the head of trading at one of the largest market makers in crypto. We've got Sam from Maker and Monet Supply coming on. Insane episodes. Hit the subscribe. Toss us a like. Santi, you want to throw out a book? Book recommendation. Oh as yeah. We, uh, so so close speaking this out. of, yeah, this is pretty awesome. I, I picked it up. It's the world for sale, and it talks about the evolution of the commodity um, hmm. trading business, and um, and yeah, it's pretty like oil, aluminum, um, gold, a lot of these, and so it's pretty interesting um, book. I'm halfway through it, and so far it hasn't disappointed. So again, the world for sale, pretty awesome. By, by who? Um. Javier Blas and Jack Farsi. I have a rec for you. It is a non-financial book. Here's my, here's what By I'm the way, none of this is financial advice. Either. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is financial advice. Go spend oh, 15 bucks on the overstory. It is a not finance book. It is, uh, it's actually like kind of, um, it just, it's this guy explores our, our, in our relationship with trees, which sounds so freaking boring. I know, but it makes you zoom out and it's a bunch of short stories. And in each short story, there's like trees are embedded into each short story. And it just, hmm. I don't know, it makes you zoom out and think about like our perception, our perception of time and why we're so bad at acting on climate change and the meaning of hope and things like that. Trees are decentralized very, networks. They are. They are. Oh, by the way, what that. is, what is your favorite tree? <laughs> what, what is your favorite tree? I have two. I don't have a favorite tree. What's your favorite What are you talking tree? about? You just shield a book about trees and you don't even have a favorite tree. No, well, it's the redwood. Just... It's, it's the redwood. I grew up outside San Francisco. So I, there was, you go. I would go hiking with my mom through the redwood. Because by the way, these are like century old trees, right? Super, They're super slender, not less sequoias. And they are in one of the more like majestic places like near the coastline. Oh, yeah. Of Western US, right? It's insane. Hundreds yeah, of years massive. old. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite uh, tree? Oh, redwoods and bonsai trees. Oh, bonsai. Yeah. Bonsai. Amazing. You do you have a bonsai? Uh, not here. Not here. Where? In the metaverse. Another house? Oh, okay. <laughs> In the metaverse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I actually have a bunch of bonsai, like bonsai NFTs. Like, this is one of the earlier mints and I like aped in because I like bonsai. <laughs> bonsai. I love it. Bonsai, yeah. uh, bonsai trees go back thousands of years. Yeah. Um, honestly, like uh, speaking of travel, which you can travel more now, but the airlines suck now these days. I think they're 1600 for, like, layoffs. This week. Or it's crazy. For people that are, flight, I mean, don't canceled. even get me started. I miss permission of this because of travel. 
I dread traveling now because every person that I talk to now has had a negative experience at airports with airlines with luggage, getting lost, all this stuff. So flight delays getting canceled. Nonetheless, if you ever get the chance, uh, and I went to DEFCON, the, the last DEFCON was in Osaka. Japan is a magical place. Like these gardens, meditation gardens are unreal, like just out of this world. And the vegetation in Japan is like incredible. And if you don't want to go to Japan, just watch like The Last Samurai or whatever and just observe the gardens and the vegetation because I think it's so peaceful. I love it. Zen, Zen love gardens. It. Zen gardens. Anyways, I hope everyone's zen out there and, uh, you know, not enjoy getting liquidated fourth. and go for a walk. Enjoy the fourth uh, and, uh, you know, keep your head up. Be well, sir. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See you next time.